Well, good evening, everyone. And indeed, it is evening. This happens to be the Saturday evening before Easter Sunday tomorrow morning. And I trust that you have been blessed by the songs that we have sung. It was our privilege to sing to you all and uh, commemorate this happy day we call Easter as Christians. We certainly are living in uncharted times and new territory for all of us. I don't know how life has been going for you all the last several weeks. It certainly has been uh, quite a trip for me. Um, I enjoy um, going to church on Sunday morning. And I did not realize how much I enjoyed that till I no longer could. And it has been um, something that has made me more anxious to be together as believers sometime in the very new future, near future, I hope. It's actually been two months since I've stood behind this podium and, and addressed you all, and I did not ever dream that the next time I would sit here and uh, address you all that it would be uh, via YouTube, and uh, I would be largely speaking to an empty church house um, other than a few of my family. But I guess that is one of the good things of modern technology. We actually can do this, and we can uh, uh, interact at least somewhat with each other with, uh, with these uh, arrangements that we have. You know, it seems surreal that, um, you know, as we ushered in the new year, it seemed like the election dominated the airwaves. And I don't know, do you all remember names like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden? Um, and then suddenly we began to hear something about COVID-19. And um, uh, not long after that, we were told we had to stay home for two weeks, perhaps. And then after that, it was April 10th. And very soon after that, it was May 1st. And now there's rumors of uh, June 1st. And uh, we have such things as hand sanitizer, face masks, ventilators, and the death count in New York City as suppertime conversations. And I guess um, we have been spoiled, our generation has largely been spoiled, that we have been able to live in the lap of luxury and prosperity, and what we call a trial for most of us is very trite. And that's not to say that some of us has not, have not been through very deep personal waters. And I'm not downplaying that at all, but largely as a group, uh, we, have, uh, we have been very blessed in our generation Still quite uncertain how these times will impact us. Um, for many of us, there's um, perhaps the economic uncertainties of all of this, maybe some of us more than others, but indeed there is a certain measure of uncertainty that goes with it. But you know what? COVID-19 or no COVID-19, tomorrow is still Easter and Christ is still risen from the dead. Fortunately, um, for us as Christians, we have no grave that we can point to and we can say, there's our leader. There's where he lay. Many other religions can do that. They can go and they can make pilgrimage to, to their founder's grave and they can do uh, whatever all they need to do there. But you and I today cannot go to a grave because there indeed is not one and we should be happy for that. I would like to just take the opportunity for the next few minutes to just look at the times and the circumstances that surrounded the life of Jesus, especially as it climaxed at his 
death, crucifixion, resurrection. And I would like to draw some comparisons and lessons that we could think about as we think about the times we're living in now with this whole COVID-19 thing and the times that Jesus lived in uh, there in those in those days there in Jerusalem as a as a man. So I'd like to just uh, just draw your attention. I'll be largely pulling from the book of Luke, but um, just think with me as we as we go through, especially the Passion Week, what we call the Passion Week of Christ. The first thing I'd like you to consider is that during the lifetime of Jesus Christ, it was largely times of tumult. Nationally, it was um, it was times of tumult. We had the Roman rule, and we had the Jews that so hated that Roman rule. They despised it, and they wanted nothing more than a leader to come along and just take them out from under that oppressive rule, that rule that they so despised. And Jesus was, in their eyes, a miserable failure because he did not get that job done. On the religious front, things were woefully wanting. We understand the, the sectarian um, religious parts of, uh, of that particular time and era. So we had the Pharisees on one side. They seemed to have noble desires to live lives of godliness, but it seems that as they pursued their ends, they caved into very less-than-godly ways of promoting a religion that Christ ultimately had to give his condemnation to. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the elites. They uh, had noble desires as well, but they were very mechanical in their religion. They were the aristocrats of the day who had their uh, their hand to the ear of the political powers of the day and had very little to offer the common man. But it was interesting how these two groups could definitely get along because uh, when it came to Jesus, both groups hated Jesus. And then we had groups like the Essenes who despised both of those sects and they went out and formed their own little sectarian monastery way of life in utter disgust for the other two groups and for a desire for something more. But you know, there were sincere people in, the, in those days too. There was people like Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna and Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and the centurion and Jairus and the list goes on. These were sincere people making the best of the times they lived in and serving God acceptably in their generation. You know, basically, this is perhaps the story of every generation. And it's up to us which group we wish to identify with. Everyone wishes to identify with group four. And I trust we do. These are the people that Jesus had close relationships with. And these were people that received Jesus' blessing. However, the fact that these people lived in the blessing of Jesus did not remove them from the tumult of their times, but rather gave them the ability to live above the fray of their wanting times and live life to the fullest despite the circumstances that they lived in. And so can we. We may have COVID-19 knocking at our door. We may have economic woes that we are a little uncertain about. And certainly the political times are uncertain. And we all know that religion in many ways is woefully wanting in our day. And we have friends and family that have chosen to follow what we would consider, unfortunately, false teachers. But today, let's with the Apostle Paul say, none of these things move me. And we can glory 
and our resurrected Lord despite our circumstances. And we praise God for that. Number two, the times of Christ were times of opportunity to minister in quite unusual ways. Throughout the Passion and Resurrection story, there were many times that there was opportunities to minister to Jesus. And sometimes we don't even think of these things as ministries necessarily. But as I pondered it and as I read over it, I couldn't help but think that, you know, indeed these were ways that people ministered. And perhaps some people didn't even know they were ministering as they were ministering. And I would like to just point out a few of these people and circumstances to you. I'm going to be drawing basically from the book of Luke here tonight. And um, if you look at Luke 22 and verse 40, we have Jesus here in the garden. And he begged the disciples for prayer. And we know the story. The disciples miserably failed in this way. And Jesus would come back and say, can't you watch with me just one hour? And indeed, the disciples so failed Jesus. Jesus was all alone. And it was a lost opportunity. You know, sometimes we'll say to people, you know, I'll pray for you. Or we will say, will you pray for me? And and we know the answer. We say, sure, absolutely, we, we'll do that. And then how many times do we, do we fail to do that? When we think of that, that's actually a way we can minister to others and we can uh, fulfill a need in a person's life that I think would have ways of impacting those people more than we know and we just fail to do that at times. So I would encourage us to not be like the disciples, but to minister to others in prayer. In Luke 22, 43, or I'm sorry, Luke 22 and, yes, verse 43, it talks about an angel that came and strengthened him from heaven. Now, often we don't think about this, this angel as a minister to Jesus, but indeed he was. Um, it seemed like Jesus was so all alone. His disciples were failing him. There was no earthly friend that he had at that time. And so God, it seems like in his, in his care for his son, sent this angel to minister to Jesus. The Hebrew writer speaks of angels as ministering spirits. And, um, we're not angels here. We don't know how many angels are around us. But again, I would like to say rather than, uh, necessarily expounding long on the angel. Let's be like the angel. Let's be people that are there ministering whenever people are in their deepest hours of grief and sorrow. Another character that shows up here in Luke 22 is in verse 26. And this is the man of uh, Cyrenian, a Cyrenian called Simon. And there's just a verse or two mentioned of him here in um, in the Gospels. And we know this man as the man that was compelled to carry the cross of Christ to the hill of Calvary. And we don't think of that as a ministry necessarily. Um, he was compelled. He was forced to do this thing. But I wonder if the day ever came when Simon looked back on that day with gratitude that he actually had that opportunity to carry the cross of Christ. Um, at the time, it seemed like anything but a ministry. Uh, I, it, it certainly was not something somebody would have wanted to do or would have volunteered to do necessarily. And I doubt Simon even knew what he was doing. But if you look, if you look in later texts and references, as I was studying, there, it seems like there was, there was a possibility that um, Simon's son Rufus could have been one of the Christians that are later named in the book of Acts. 
And, uh, of course, it's conjecture, and maybe it's not even the case, but wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be something if indeed that encounter there with Christ carrying his cross would have been the thing that actually would have at later, at some point, would have caused Simon to be, become a believer? In Luke 23, 27, we have a great company of people that says, that it says, followed and bewailed and lamented Jesus as he was led there to the cross. Again, people that entered into the pain and suffering of Jesus at personal risk. I doubt it was a great, um, a greatly looked upon thing for these people to follow a person that had just been called out for treason and had been, was, was, was going for crucifixion because of treason. And to identify with this person couldn't have been something that was necessarily looked upon favorably, but they did it anyway. In 50 and 51 of Luke 23, we have this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And the description of this man is noteworthy. It says he was a good man and a just. And it says specifically that Joseph did not consent to Jesus' death. And whenever... Jesus died, it said he went to Pilate and he begged the body of Jesus. Begged the body of a person that was crucified. And again, this is such a part of the story we fail to sit down sometimes and think of the difference or the, the absurdity or how, how this never happened. People that were crucified were left to hang there and rot. They were not taken down and given a burial. And yet, Joseph ministered to Jesus. He took Jesus' body off that cross, it seems like he would have done it by himself or maybe with a helper, and he went and laid Jesus' body in a tomb. And then in chapter 24 and verse 1, on Easter morning, as we call it, we have the women that came to the tomb. And I would like to emphasize that these women were there early. They wasted no time in their ministry to Jesus. So what are the lessons we can learn here? I think it's very simple. Let's not squander the opportunities we have to serve. Shrink from the unlovely, but rather let's enter into the hardship of others. Because indeed this is true Christianity. It is no secret that during the great plagues of the Middle Ages, it was the Christians that were willing to go out, they were willing to risk their lives to save others when others were not willing to do so. Because there was great risk that, that a person could indeed lose his life from these plagues that were besetting the society of the time. So during these times, there's opportunities to serve that maybe don't always come along. So let's do that. Let's be people that are using these unique opportunities that we have during this unusual time of this COVID-19 to serve people. There's people that are sewing face masks and gowns and picking up groceries for someone, or just maybe it's calling an elder on a phone and chatting with them. Just this week, I was at a farmer's place, and he told me of his 80-year-old dad. And he said, you know, he said, I'm the only person that goes and sees this man anymore because he's 80 years old, and he said if, if he caught this, this bug, it would probably kill him. And he said, I asked him, should I keep on coming to see you? And he said, absolutely. He said, I'm going to die if you don't. And so we have this we have this man that is ministering to his father in that way and i'm blessed by that i'd also like to point you to the walk on the Emmaus road as the third point here in luke 24 
verses 13 to 31. We're very familiar with that account where the two bewildered disciples are walking and reasoning and communing. There was just too much drama in those these last days for them to almost, yeah, what would I say, almost gra- to grapple with and to, um, to uh, digest. And they had just had these friends of theirs, these women, that had came and said, you know, the tomb is empty. And they were... They were so disgusted by this that it said it fell on their ears as an idle tell. They were like, these ladies, what do they see? They're seeing things. But you know, as they were walking along, Jesus enters into the picture, and uh, he begins to expound to them the scriptures. And they didn't know it was Jesus. We know that story. And as they walked along, it says Jesus explained to them from Moses through the law and the prophets, and everything started to make sense to these people. And so whenever they got to their house, they said, Jesus, come on in for supper. Let's come in and let's have some supper. And so Jesus consented to do that. And Jesus went in and sat down and they asked him to have the blessing there on the meal. And it said immediately their eyes were open and they knew it was Jesus. And Jesus at that point disappeared. And they looked at each other and they said, didn't our hearts burn whenever we walked with this man by the way, we should have known that was Jesus. In other words, our hearts were were burning in a way that they hadn't burned before. What are the lessons we can learn from this road to Emmaus? <clears throat> you know, we need we need time to be with Jesus, and that is why personal Bible reading is so vital. And perhaps it's even more vital now that we can't gather in a collective way and and uh, hear the preaching of the Word and discuss things in Sunday school. You know, it's no secret that the hustle and bustle of life has been greatly reduced for a lot of people, and as we have this stay-at-home order and, and these things. And uh, maybe now that we have less things to do and we're at home more, maybe now we have more time to spend with Jesus. And I would like to encourage us to do that. You know, it's very tempting to fritter our time away looking at the latest toilet paper jokes or song parodies, or listening to all the talking heads yammer away about what every politician should or shouldn't have done, and mostly what they shouldn't have done, you know, there's better things to do. Let's turn off our devices and let's our, let our hearts burn as we spend time with Jesus. Why had they not understood the things that Jesus explained on that road before? Why hadn't they? Well, it's quite likely that they had had things explained in some way to the to them, but perhaps the teaching that they had received was just a little off. It was said of Jesus that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. And the people found that attractive. Again, I'm going to encourage us. Let's dig deep into the word of God. Let's not just surface read it, but let's consider it. Let's see if we can't have things explained to us in a way that we never have thought of before as we search the scriptures. Perhaps we could do some reading that's deeper than fiction during this time. You know, God has some advice for us in the Bible. He says, be still and know that I am God. Jesus told the disciples once, he said, come apart into a desert place and rest a while. Maybe this time with this repose from the regular duties of life is a time that is an Emmaus Road event for us. 
Number four. I draw this point from Luke 23, verses 28 to 31. And I'm going to just read these verses. They are very interesting verses and not often talked about, but I'm going to read them. But Jesus turning unto them, and and I should just give you the setting here. This is the crowd, the great company of people that are following Jesus. And it says we're bewailing and lamenting him. And here's what Jesus said. It says he turned around and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? This fourth point I would like to call, we, we at this juncture should consider the days ahead and prepare accordingly. In this reading that I just got done reading, Jesus is in one of the most excruciating moments of his life, and he turns to the people that are be, that are bewailing his demise, and they and he said, "Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves, because of the things that are going to take place shortly after." Jesus probably here is referring to the sacking of Jerusalem by Titus, in, a, in around seventy A.D. And the interesting thing is, during that time, there was not one Christian lost his life, even though the entire city was sacked and many, many people were brutally killed. The Jews had revolted against Rome about four years before. They were seeking freedom that they could almost taste. And only four years later, they were crushed by the Romans in many inhumane ways. Ironically, the people who believed in Jesus and the fable of his resurrection and had long given up hope of any restored Jewish nation, were the ones that were able to escape for their lives, and not one of their lives were lost. And those who were absolutely bent on throwing off the oppressive Roman rule lost everything, including their lives, and in all likelihood lost eternal life as well. So what are the lessons we can learn from this this warning? You know, Jesus likewise gives us warns, warning signs of the end of the age as we know it now. Things that will happen shortly before his second coming. And we, we know what they are. They're wars and rumors of wars. They're iniquity that abounds and the love of many waxing cold. Jesus talks about weather-related events that are cataclysmic in nature. And it seems like no doubt we are living right on the cusp of something very big. And I suppose Christians in every era have felt that way, and I think that's right. Um, many eras of time through the Christian history have known very, very, very sad times in many, in many ways. But, you know, we have the advantage of looking back and looking where, we're at, where we are now and looking to the future. And I think we are very wise to pay close attention to the events that Christ predicts and to live soberly as he advised us. You know, the Jews believed that a free nation was going to be the answer to their problems, and they were willing to sacrifice all to try to achieve it. And again, the Christians were willing to leave everything to escape. They were willing to leave everything in Jerusalem and save only their lives. And I think that's so interesting because Jesus said, when you see 
the the army surrounding Jerusalem. I don't even want you to turn back to your house to get your purse. I want you to head for the mountains. And that's exactly what those Christians did. Today, we have people that trust their 401ks, their IRAs. They trust the stock market because the stock market, after all, is always going to come back. They trust our great economy. They trust the military or their own arsenal of guns or their hefty bank account. These are things people trust in. I personally believe that this is very faulty thinking. You know, maybe the Dow will come back. It's possible that it will. But maybe it won't either. We have absolutely no promise that it will. Can we accept the reality that things could change in ways we have never seen before? And can we accept that? You know, I would encourage us that in light of this current pandemic, let's consider just exactly what drives us and what are we actually tying our security to. And if we need to unbind ourselves from that, let's do it. Because those Christians in Jerusalem, if they would have turned back and they would have tried to move their household with them, they wouldn't have escaped. They would have perished with the rest of them. But they knew better. And Jesus warned us of the same thing. He said, look, he said, I'm going to be going for a while. But he said, while I'm going, I don't want you to be all engrossed in the things of this earth so that when I come back, you're not ready to go with me. And I think we do very, very well to consider that. You know, recently here in the last couple of weeks, I was listening to a financial advisor that gave the example of a, of a person that came to him during this crisis. And he, and he told this person that he had two million dollars in savings and he was, he was curious if this advisor felt that that was enough. And the advisor was like, two million dollars. I mean, what are we talking about here? And, and, and that's the absurdity. That's what people begin to put their trust in. And it doesn't matter if you have a hundred dollars or if you have two million. If God chooses to take that away, it's coming away. And for us to try to put our trust in that is absolutely ludicrous. And I would challenge us. Is this how our minds run too? And I'm afraid sometimes mine runs in that direction a little too much. But you know, if our lives have been changed by the power of the resurrection, this current situation can just become background noise. We're, inner, we're winners either way. Even if we do face hard times, the joy of the Lord and the power of the resurrection can cause us to confess, just like Paul, whether I abase or whether I abound, it's the same to me because of the power of Jesus Christ. You know, I've told many people that this current situation feels to me like a fire drill. It feels like a lot of, a lot of things happening, but my life has remained fairly normal. So we're doing all these things, but Speaking personally, there hasn't been just an awful lot changed in my life. I, I personally don't know people that are sick necessarily. I, I, um, you know, there's just not much has changed. And so for me, it feels like, yeah, again, like a, a fire drill. But perhaps this is a test. You know, how, how do I respond to shortages or to these scares that, uh, so, so many people have panicked about? And perhaps it's a good thing to sit down and consider. How would I respond if things got exponentially worse? Which they could. Which they could. It's very, very much um, 
a probability that, that they could. It could well be that things will go back to normal, but it could well be that worse things are to come, and we need to be prepared for either. It is interesting to me that in uh, Matthew 24, when Jesus was giving his, um, he was giving his signs to the disciples of what they could expect during, right before his coming to earth the second time. And one of the things that he does mention is pestilences. And he said pestilences would be the sign of the beginning of the end of the age. And indeed this pandemic would fit into the category of a pestilence. And I think we do well to seriously begin to think about the potential that the future holds for us. All right, the last point I'd like to give you, as a Christian, as people that celebrate Easter and celebrate it for a reason, not just for Easter bunnies and chocolate and and uh, all these things, but because Jesus rose from the dead, can we live lives that is that are powerful and joyful because of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, there are several hallmarks of Christianity, and one of them is the ability to live above our terrestrial circumstances. In John 16, 33, it says this, In the world you will have tribulation. Some versions render that you will have trouble. In the world you have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And just a few verses later, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after he rose, it says that in Luke 24 and verse 38, it says, why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? It says they were terrified and affrighted when Jesus appeared to them. And Jesus said, why are you troubled? Why do you let these thoughts arise in your hearts? You know, living, again, I want to just emphasize, living in the power of the resurrection does not free us from trouble, but it allows the trouble, the inability to control us. Trouble is a part of life. Jesus said that. In this world, you will have trouble. But fear is does not have to be the response. You know, fear is often the common response, and, and we know something of that. We know what fear is. You know, what will happen because of this trouble? But we don't have to allow that fear to consume us. And it's because of the resurrection that we don't have to allow that. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. In John 14, 19, there's a verse that goes like this. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. And because I live, ye shall live also. In John 10, 10, Jesus says this. I am come that they, or we might say you, I am come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Have you ever thought about how trite, small, little, insignificant things can so consume us and steal that abundant life, steal that that joy that we should have in our lives and just take it away from us? It's such little things sometimes. You know, the inability to find things that were once common. You know, right now, you know, we go to the store sometimes and there's there's items we want and it's not there. And we look at every store and we can't find them. And it's an inconvenience. And it can it can be somewhat of a disgusting, disturbing joy stealer if we allow it to be that. Let's not allow that to happen. Let's not let the trite things of life 
steal that abundant life away from us. I would like to read the testimony of Paul here at the end. He says this to the Galatian church. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the freedom from the bondage and the power and the shame of sin is the ultimate joy that the resurrection brings to us. And then those little trite things of life just become just annoyances. They really don't bother us. They, they can't control us because we're living far above that. Jesus said in John eight thirty six, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And then Paul brings up this idea of freedom in Romans 6.22, and he says, And now, being made free from sin, and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. Now, I'd like for us just to think about that verse for just a little bit. He, Paul says, again, Jesus says, If I make you free, you will be free indeed. Paul says, we will be free from sin. And so the question you and I have to ask ourselves, are you, am I free from sin? If we're not, we are not experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives. And we need to. If we want to enjoy abundant life, we have to understand what that means. We have to imbibe that. We have to live a life that's free from sin. We cannot allow these vices to consume us. We have to live free from them. And we can. Praise God, we can. Are you a servant of God? Who are you serving? There's only two people we will end up serving. It's either going to be Jesus on the one hand or it's going to be the devil on the other. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves, who am I serving? Am I serving the resurrected Lord or am I serving the old devil? If we're free, we're serving Jesus. Paul also says that now that we are free, we have our fruits unto holiness. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Is it fruits that are holy? Is it things that people can look at and say, that person there knows Jesus? And ultimately, he says, we have the promise of everlasting life. And again, you and I need to ask ourselves, what are we looking forward to? Are we looking for, forward to that everlasting life that Jesus promised? Or are we just content to keep our earthbound view on this COVID-19 and all the other things that surround us and... Uh, Forget about that promise of eternal life that Jesus promised he'd give us. Well, thank God we have no grave to go to today. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is vain and we are of all men most miserable. And I have to concur. I pity the Christian that does not understand what it's like to live a life that is above sin, that is in holiness, and is looking forward to the Second coming of our Lord. That has to be an absolutely miserable life. Have you made the resurrection the reason for living? Or is it just another ho-hum day on the calendar for you? We have to decide which it is. I certainly hope it's the reason that you have for living. The last sentence I'd like to leave with you. You know, in the, in the um, gospel accounts, it says that the Angels said to the women, he is not here, he is risen. 
Those, those had to be in some of the sweetest words those women ever heard. They, they did not come to that grave expecting to find it empty. But the angel said, he's not here. He has risen. And because of that statement that that angel made to those women that day, someday we will not be here because we will have risen. Now, isn't that neat? He is not here because he has risen. And someday we will not be here because we have risen. And that truly will be the finale of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the day I'm living for. I hope that's the day you're living for it as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you at the close of this service as we, as, as we, as we have considered your death, your experiences, your resurrection, and the power that you can give to each one of us as we draw near to you, we truly make your resurrection a part of our lives, and we live in that freedom that you have promised us. And so, God, I just pray that we can experience anew the freedom that you give to us, that we can revive our hearts and resolve once again to live in the power of the resurrection. And Lord, if there's any in the, under the sound of this voice that does not know you, has not been resurrected with you, has not been risen with you, does not experience the new life that you want to give, Lord, I just pray that this would be the day that a new start could be made, that they could uh, learn to know you and live in the power of your resurrection. I pray you would bless each one of us during this time of absence from one another and that we would, uh, according to your will, be able to soon be together as brothers and sisters and enjoy fellowship once again. We ask you this in your name. Amen.